Well, we'll be looking this morning at the parable of the prodigal son and looking especially at the first son's rebellion, his repentance, and his reception back home. Now, preaching this parable does present a few challenges. I'll just name a few of them. Benjamin Morgan Palmer described it as um, perfect in every way. Uh, it's been described as the greatest short story ever told. Um, one preacher, Kenneth Stewart, said that it's so beautiful and so attractive that preachers are often scared, uh, thinking that in touching it, they might mar it. And there's something of that here. It's also so obvious. Uh, you, you understand the contours. You, you understand what's going on, and you see the basic principles of repentance and reception and what is it that I could say other than read the Bible and look at the text? There's also a challenge that the story of the younger son is so beautiful, so glorious, that we often forget about the older son. He's kind of left behind, out of sight, and out of mind, and we forget that really the older son is the whole point of the parable, that Jesus Christ is using him to shine the mirror upon the Pharisees, who were simply grumbling at Jesus Christ's willingness to go and to receive sinners, even before they evidence repentance. And yet, all of that aside, we will, by the help of God, look at this parable uh, with His help and consider, first, the younger son. Well, if you notice the title of the sermon, Rebellion, Repentance, and Reception, those are going to be the the three headings that we'll look at it, and uh, each of those headings will have some helpful ways of remembering uh, with the use of alliteration, so just alerting you to that. So first of all, we'll consider the rebellion of the younger son. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. Now there's four ways in which this younger son rebels, and the first of them is that his rebellion is internal. It's inside, it's in his heart. And it doesn't quite say that immediately in the text, but it's behind the text and it's there in the text. Uh, J.C. Ryle said that what you have in the younger son is a perfect picture of the natural bent of humanity, uh, the natural inclinations of humans' heart. We are born as those who are uh, not inclined to the things of God, but rather averse to the things of God. We don't love God and His worship. We don't love His way of salvation. We don't like the obligations which He places upon us. We imagine for ourselves that we will be happier if we cast the cords of the Lord from us, if we give ourselves to the things of the world. And yet, this occurs in the context of one who is called a son. Now, very interesting that he's in the father's house and he is called a son. Now, <clears throat> there are at least three ways in the Bible in which someone could be considered a son of God. The first is by a son by creation, that you know, God the Father is maker of all things and we have our being from him and in that sense we proceed from him and we have a natural sonship, rightly understood. There is a son of adoption, 
in which one who is created in the image of God is brought into fellowship with God by the blood of Jesus Christ and is exalted to a place higher than man ever achieved in the garden. A son by adoption and all the privileges of God the Son are bestowed upon us. But there's also a middle category there. It's important to understand. You can be a son by covenant. You can be a son of the covenant, a son of the kingdom. You can have privileges that are bestowed upon you. God's name upon your head, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wed to yours, forever united, not separable. And yet, you can fall short of being a son by adoption. You can have a promise that is left to you and refuse it. You can have all these privileges and not approve upon them. You can have a heart that is far from the Lord even when you are laboring in God's house. So you have a son here and his rebellion is internal. We're not told what his life was like, but maybe he had some external conformity. Maybe he would have been working in the field with his older brother. Maybe there wouldn't have been some some great uh, scandal in his life up to this point. He was a son of covenant. He was a son of creation. But he is evidencing that he is not a son by adoption. And this is the natural course of humanity. Now, God says in Jeremiah chapter 7, well, 17 rather, well-known text, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, think about that. Just come under the weight of, of that statement. God is saying there, if I could give one attribute and one attribute only to the human heart, it would be this, deceitful and desperately wicked. And one of the ways it manifests its deceitful nature is by convincing itself, convincing yourself that you're actually not desperately wicked, that your heart is telling you the truth when all is well. And all this is a great lie. What we need to remember as parents, as we consider our own children, who are definitely sons of uh, creation and sons of the covenant, may or may not be sons by adoption, in that all our parenting, in all of our labor for our children, we are not aiming at external conformity. But with the Proverbs, we are saying to them, Son, give me your heart. Because long before... This man, with this younger brother, with his feet, went out into the far country and wasted his, his, his living with riotous living. He had a heart that was departing from the ways of the Lord. He had a heart that was not right before God. He had a heart that was in rebellion. His rebellion, first and foremost, was inside. It was internal. And we've got to come to reckon with this natural disposition. You must come to reckon with this natural disposition. Well, second of all, you can say that his rebellion was insulting. So children, the younger of them comes to his father and he says, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. And the father did. Now, what he's saying there is, is he's saying, I want my inheritance now. And it, the custom of this time was that the older brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother would get one-third. But this inheritance would not be bestowed upon any until the father's death. So when the son comes to his father 
and says, I want my, I want my substance now, what's being implied by that? He's saying essentially to his father, Father, the amount of money that you'll give to me is worth more than having you alive. I, I, I'm unwilling to wait for you to die to get my money. So simply give me my money now. Can you imagine this? I mean, there are things which people say that, yes, in the Christian life, uh, you, will you will bestow forgiveness upon them. But there are certain things that you can say that even after forgiveness occurs, you can't unsay them. And they, they, will, they will bear a mark or a, uh, a remembrance upon that person forever. The son is coming to his dad and essentially saying, Dad, I want you dead because I want my money. Now, what does the dad do? I mean, there, is a, there was a stipulation in the law that if a, if, a, if a son was rebellious and stubborn, the father could bring them to the elders of the city and say he is a stubborn child. He is a drunkard and a glutton. We have tried, and all of our attempts have been unsuccessful, and uh, I'm bringing you to the elders to stone him. It, it may have been a, a proper recourse. It may have been just in that time to do this. He could have driven him out with cords. He could have whipped him or disowned him and said, your inheritance, you're not getting anything. It's going all to your brother now. I'm disowning you. In Malachi, we read these words uh, when God is chastising Israel. Malachi 1.6, in which God says, um, a son honors his father and a servant his master. You know, in other words, it's natural for a son to honor his father in a certain sense. If I then be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts. O priest that despise my name. And so forth. So the son comes with a rebellious heart. And he gives his dad such a great insult. He says, I want you dead. And the father... To his credit, I suppose you could say, his lack of judgment. I mean, I would be more likely to cast him out with cords. I would be more likely to say, you don't get any inheritance. It's going all to your older brother who's happily working in my field right now. The father says, okay. And he divides unto him, them, his living. Now, in order to divide unto them his living, he would have had to liquidate his assets. In other words, children, he would have had to sell a lot of things. Uh, he would have had to sell livestock and perhaps other things in order to have the cash necessary to give to his younger son. So not only does he acquiesce, but he goes to great trouble and great difficulty to acquiesce. What, what kind of father is this that is not so readily provoked to rage, but rather uh, bears long with the son? He gives it to him. So his rebellion is internal. His rebellion is insulting. And... We see, third of all, that his rebellion is immoderate. So after this, notice in verse uh, 13, not many days after, the younger son, he takes his living and he goes. He doesn't wait long. And he goes off into a far country. Now, notice what we just read in Psalm 73. They that are far off from you shall perish forever. But he is going out to that far country. He is uh, now what has been inside in his heart and this internal rebellion is giving voice with his feet. He's going to the place of 
rebellion. He's, he's off into the far country, and there he is wasting his substance with riotous living. This gives you a, a, a picture, or um, perhaps it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a general way of describing, leaves something to the imagination. The older brother would say of him, you know, he's wasted your substance with harlots and, and, and prostitutes. We don't know if that's true or if the older brother's maybe exaggerating here, but he takes that money and he wastes it with riotous living. The, the image there is immoderate living in which he doesn't spare anything, anything that his heart desires. He spends the money in order to attain it. He just simply gives himself to madness and to folly, and he spends it without caring. I can speak of my own self or my own experience that in college there are those who are sent to college, they have everything paid for them, they have a nice house, and they have a pretty fat bank account that their parents put money in there each time. And these people will go out to the bars, and for lack of a better expression, they will simply make it rain. They'll be buying everybody drinks, and they'll be having a great time, and, and they're the life of the party. And the reason is, in part, because they have no understanding of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into that money. They don't think in terms of the labor and capital that required to have this money. It's just a thing. And if they want it, they buy it. They give themselves unto it. And they have it in great abundance. That's what this man does. He is living in uh, riotous living. There's a, a few texts in Ephesians which we'll um, consider briefly just in terms of to get a picture of what this young man is doing. First of all, Ephesians 2, 3, he's saying that we once had our convertation in times past, the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, by nature children of wrath. The younger son here has lusts of the flesh, and he is fulfilling those lusts of the flesh by spending the money necessary to do it. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, that it says that don't walk as other Gentiles, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of heart, who being past feeling, give themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Whatever may be said of the younger brother, it can safely be said that as he is wasting his uh, living on riotous living, he is giving himself to uncleanness with greediness. It's an immoderate rebellion. And fourth of all, it's an ignominious rebellion. It's a helpful thing to help you remember. It's also an opportunity to improve your vocabulary. It means shameful, embarrassing. It's being brought down to the lowest depths. He's there, he's spending, and then what do we read in verse 14? When he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in the land and began to be in want. Notice the agency of God here. If God had sent a famine in the land when he had plenty of money, he would have had security. And he would have maybe used that money a bit more wisely and he bought a house or whatever the case may be. But no, God waits until this young son of his is completely empty, completely destitute of financial resources, has wasted all of his substance with his unclean greediness, and then he sends difficulty. He sends a famine. Now, I myself 
have no idea what hunger is. You may not know what hunger is. You may have fasted. You may know what cravings are like at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But you have, in all likelihood, no comprehension of the physical pains associated with hunger, of the emotional distress associated with not knowing where your next meal may come from, of the spiritual anguish that comes thinking God has substance and He's withholding it, and yet God is exactly what He does. He teaches men, He teaches sinners, in part by affliction and difficulty. And when this young man had spent all, he sent a famine in that land. Now, kids, what are you thinking here? So, there's a famine, there is difficulty, and he's wasted all of his living. And so what would you do? What, what, what would be the right thing to do? And I hope you would say, well, just go back to his father. Just admit that he was wrong and acknowledge that he's a good father and that it's really his fault. But he doesn't. Instead of going to the father, he joins himself or glues himself by covenant with a citizen of that country. Now, why would he do that? Because he hasn't hit rock bottom yet. He's still at a place where he's holding on to his own fanciful notions of the world. His lusts still cry out for the world. And so as one man said, he is applying the world's solutions to the world's problems. There's a famine. I guess i got to get a job. I, I, I'm hungry. I guess I need to go work for this man, but it's more than just working for a man because the man, the, the place that this man puts him to work is feeding the pigs. Now, Jesus is speaking to Jews here, and pigs, in a sense, represent everything that's unclean. And so, this young boy, he's brought to live amongst pigs, and it's, 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 it's a picture of his unclean life. And the degradation that comes as a result of that. I, I bet if you had asked him, all right, young man, you're going out to the far country. Give us some time and you'll be feeding pigs. He would have said, no, no, no. Never will I be brought to that. I know people come to college and they see what people are doing. And they'll say, mm, I see this. I recognize it. They're using this substance. They're engaging in this behavior. I'll never do that. Give it a little time. Sin is corrupting. It never has enough. If, if you think for a moment that you can sort of control sin and say to sin, all right, sin, we'll go this far, but no farther, just wait. Just give it time. He, he, this young man is brought into the absolute depths. He is a pig farmer. He is not only a pig farmer, but he is a miserable pig farmer. He's He's hungry. He joined himself to the citizen of that country and he would fain have filled his belly with the husk. And the, 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 the imagery there is he is in a continual state of want and hunger. He may have never known a hungry day in his life. He may have been completely satisfied all of his days, but now his whole life is defined by hunger. It is defined by um by unrealized satisfaction to such a point that he would even eat the pig's food. Now, why didn't he eat the pig's food? Well, we don't know. 
Maybe in a famine, this citizen of the country, like Ahab, who was looking for water for his horses, forgetting the fact that his people were dying of thirst. Maybe the citizen of the country was more concerned that his livestock was fed than him. Or maybe he was just with the pigs in the field and then they went and he, they ate over there and he wasn't allowed. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, maybe the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Maybe he wanted it, but he couldn't actually bring himself to it. The point is, is that this man is learning from experience two things that I can tell you and you can recognize, but he's learning by experience, and that is that the way of a transgressor is hard. It hurts. It's not enjoyable no matter what it promises. That there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. He is being brought to an ignominious rebellion. He is embarrassed. He's in a continual state of want. He is undone. Now, I want you to see, first of all, this is actually a good thing. If a prodigal son leaves the father's house and goes out into the world and his experience stops where he is wasting his substance on riotous living and it doesn't go beyond that, that's not what we want. If a child leaves the father's house, we want them to be made miserable. We don't want them to have success in this world. I thought to myself, uh, John Piper, who, who's a man whose ministry I've, I've prospered from, and, and, and especially early on in my days as a Christian, and you know, he had a son that departed, and he had a son that started a, a, a business uh, about making posts online. I'm not fully understanding what all was there, and you know what happened? The worst thing happened imaginable. That business was really successful, and he's a millionaire. That's not what you want. You you, you want him or her to be brought where they're, as it were, feeding the, feeding the pigs. Desiring, hungering after anything. And, and, and no man giving unto him anything. Being hated by the world that they loved. You know, there's actually something of, of, of hell that's you know, imagined for us here. So, He's with the pigs. That's the place of uncleanness. In hell, everyone is given up to the place of, of great uncleanness. I mean, their heart is just let loose to have all its desires. They're with the Satan and his angels. And, you know, don't think to yourself that in hell, all these souls who are damned are thinking to themselves, ah, I, I wish I could go back. And No, they are blaspheming God. They are unclean. Uh, not only that, but this idea of hungering and thirsting, the rich man in hell, all he wanted was a sip of water. He just wanted a little taste on his tongue, just a little desire to be fulfilled. It wasn't given. In hell, no desire is satisfied, but every want of mercy is refused. And last of all, he's lonely, and he's no man has given to him anything. And, and, and hell is that place of, of outer darkness, of great isolation, in deep dark blackness, and when there are experiences that come up, as it were, from under the earth and cause one to feel this, then the weight of their sin is being pressed upon them. And pray the Lord that He would help them to see this, or her to see it. 
So his rebellion, internal, insulting, immoderate, and ignominious as he is feeding the pigs and desiring their food. But praise the Lord that in the case of the younger son, it didn't end there where he's spending his substance in riotous living. But second of all, we see repentance. So notice what we read in verse 17. When no man is giving unto him, then glorious words, he came to himself. Lots of languages have expressions like this. Have you ever said of someone that they're out of their mind? That they're crazy? That they've totally lost it? Sin will make you crazy. Sin will make you illogical. Sin will make you affirm lies and hate truth. Sin is opposed to everything that is good, right, and beautiful. It's the total opposite of God in every respect. Sin is madness. If you look at John Brown's references and on this page, he will send you over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 2, which gives a, a helpful description of the type of madness that we're talking about. Um, uh, excuse me, verse 3. There is an evil among all things that are done unto sun. No, it is verse 2. No, it's verse 3. There is one event. Yea, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Madness that is in the heart of a sinner. Think to yourself. There are people out there who have PhDs who will genuinely tell you with a straight face and believing it in their heart that the whole universe simply sprung up out of nothing. That, that nothing created not only something but everything. And that from this nothing proceeded order and life and morality. There are people who are in high places of government and um, uh, society and all the rest, who believe to themselves, really, that there are hundreds of genders and that one can simply skate along the, the, the panoply of them, switching, as it were, from one day to the next. And when someone comes and says, actually, none of this is true, uh, the world was created by an immaterial, spiritual being, the only necessary being. He did it by the very word of His power. He did it in the space of six days. He created everything all very good. He made man, male, and female after His own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And this is who we are. This is who we came to be. And this is uh, uh, how we ought to look at the whole world. They will look at you in the face and tell you, you're crazy. You think, well, what do you mean? You just told me nothing created everything. You just told me that we have no idea how life got here, but it got, maybe aliens brought it. Well, where did they come from? And you think, what in the world? That is the madness of sin. And when God comes, when He begins to work on someone, what does He do? What does the Spirit's work of regeneration but enlighten the mind? 
you know, Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, much learning has made you mad. That's the natural man's response to the Christian. And the Christian says, no, let God be true and every man a liar. I've been thinking about things all wrong. You know, have you ever had that experience, kid? Uh, anyone in this room, have you had this experience where you have a behavior that you consider normal and just and right and all the rest? It's not that big of a deal that you just tell some white lies. It's not that big of a deal that you fudge on your taxes. It's not that big of a deal that you're coveting in your heart. And then, boom, God comes. And you, as it were, come to yourself and you see things from a very different perspective. And you realize, I've been all wrong. Well, essentially in the work of regeneration, the first thing that the, the, the Spirit of God does is He comes and He shines the spotlight of God's Word upon your own soul. And He shows you, you may think it all made sense. You may think you had a perfect understanding. But in reality, you've been thinking about things all wrong. And the sinner will come to themselves. If you come to yourself, have you seen God as He reveals Himself and you as He reveals that to you? You've got to see what this young man has seen. That his life of rebellion not only doesn't please God, but it is miserable. Miserable. It's one of the evidences of, of a work of God is that they not only see that they've offended God, they not only see that they're sinner, but they also come to see something of themselves, that they are just purely miserable. You know, and, and until the Spirit of God convinces them of this, they may have you know, understanding, they may have some indication of it, but they don't even begin to know the depths of their misery now, or the ocean, the infinite ocean of misery that is awaiting them on the other side of eternity. So he comes to himself. He realized. Second of all, out of this realization, he says, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. What is this? This is a resolution. He resolved. So he first realized and then he resolved and he says, I'm going to go home. Have you ever done this? Uh, you know, <clears throat> maybe you've witnessed to someone and you've told them about the Lord and they begin feeling some things and they say, you know, you're right. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to be at church on the next Lord's Day and I'm going to listen to that sermon that you sent me and I'm going to uh, stop getting drunk and, and so on and so forth. And, and then what happens is, is none of that comes to fruition. They don't read their Bible, they don't pray, they don't come to church, and instead they're in the bar. What, what, what making resolutions is, that's not repentance. Uh, when I was studying for, you know, studying business and so forth, one of the things that I read that I thought was helpful and insightful was that uh, if you make a good resolution, don't be so forward to tell people. So, for example, if you want to lose weight and you think to yourself, Okay, here's my plan. I'm going to lift weights Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'm going to go walking Tuesday, Thursday, and I'm going to adjust my diet in such and such a manner. The moment you tell someone that that's your plan and you describe for them what you're going to do, 
you get a little bit of pleasure in it as if you've already done it. You get a little bit of a dopamine kick. And, and, and so, it, it, you know, in other words, actually get moving and get doing it. But the point is, we wouldn't say if someone did tell us that, you'll never do this. This is just an empty resolution. I already know you're not going to listen to the sermon. You've told me a million times you're going to come to church, and you've never done it. You wouldn't put them down because at the end of the day, repentance starts here in a certain sense. It metanoia, that Greek word, it means a change of mind. He's changed his mind. He's made a resolution. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back, and he's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He begins to see many things about himself, but he also begins to see the goodness of his father, that in his father's house, even the servants have something to eat. Kenneth Stewart, when he was preaching this text, he said something tremendously helpful. He said, here's the difference between a good father and a bad father. When a bad father's son messes up, he'll say, I can't tell my dad about this. He'll kill me. When a good father's son messes up, he'll say, I have really messed up. I need to go to my dad. Even if there are going to be hard consequences upon that son, even if severe trials may be visited or whatever the case may be, he's got to know that you love him and that you're good and that he has a place in your house. So he resolved. He sees himself. He sees his father. He makes a resolution. But in verse 20, he actually repented. He arose and he came to his father. Here's the, here's the simple description of it. To realize your sin, to make a resolution of dealing with it. All good and well, fine, but it's not repentance. Repentance is when, as you were, you get up and you go to the Lord. Repentance is when God brings you to Himself. Repentance in which there is a turning from sin to God with an apprehension of His mercy. It's this simple. Naomi, who left her own country and went to a far country, and in the face of a famine, she was brought to the end of herself, and it wasn't until she arose and returned to Bethlehem, Judah, that she had repented. And isn't that what it is? Naomi arose, and he arose, and he came to his father. When you turn your feet from the way of transgression to the way of obedience, that is when repentance comes. And friends, if you don't understand that a foolish heart darkened by sin in the blackness and darkness of its own lust, working all in cleanness with greediness, is simply unable to do this, then you've begun to see the problem. But you've begun to see also the glory that repentance is good news. When John comes, preparing the way for the Lord, and he says, repent, there is an implied uh, premise there that is saying, if you turn to God, He will receive you. When Jesus Christ comes and He preaches the gospel on the streets of Galilee, the first word out of His mouth is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's teaching what's happened. Now the command, 
repent and believe the gospel. No man can come unto the fa unto the Son unless the Father draw him. It's the Father who calls, and it's the Spirit who enables, and it's the Son who receives, and all the rest. And this is true, this is right, this is biblical, this is Presbyterian. But friends, put your feet on the steps. God doesn't tell you, wait until there's a motion of the Spirit, and then come. What kind of farmer would say to himself, unless God grows the seed, then it won't sprout. So therefore, here's the seeds, here's the water, and if they go into the soil, it's fine by me. He will plant, he will plow, and he will pray. Just as it were, start making moves in that direction. Just as it were, begin to seek the Lord in the day which he shall be found. Just as it were, look to God and trust in him. This young man, he repented. And you know, think about it. He's, he's on the way back. And there would have been a lot of, there would have been a lot of temptations to not seal the deal. To not close with Christ, to use that word. I mean, can you imagine? Satan would have been assaulting him so much. You're going to go back to your father's house? But you understand you're going to be the laughing stock of your whole community, right? Do you remember what you said to him? You told him he'd rather he was dead. Your older brother? I mean, no way he's going to be happy with you. Give it a little bit more time in the, in the far country. If things weren't so bad. Remember all the fun that you had? Just turn back. Maybe the citizens of that country will be nice. Don't do it. And all of these temptations would have been on him, around him, in his mind. And the difficulty of it is, is that in each of those temptations, there's a kernel of truth, right? I mean, he was insulted to his father. He was embarrassing. He should not expect a glorious reception from many there. But yet he keeps his feet on the path. And then third of all, we have a father who receives him. We have a reception. So he's saying all these things. And one of the glories of this passage is that when he was afar off, his father saw him. Three things about the father. First of all, the father was ready. I was ready to receive him. Terry Johnson says he was eager. The father saw him. And so the image there is the father, night after night, week after week, month after month, as it were, standing on the front porch and looking out. Is today the day that my son will return? I've been praying that God would make him miserable. Is today the day he's brought to himself? He sees him while he is afar off, and he is filled with compassion. Oh, what a sweet word that is. He uh, sees the sun, and he feels the pain. He understands the trial. And it's as it, as it were that this uh, emotional connection with his own son leaves him to abandon himself, and he runs forth to greet him. Very uncustomary. The, this time, it would have been considered very inappropriate for a man of his dignity and age and all the rest to be running anywhere or doing anything. They were to be nice and slow and well composed. But this father simply does not care. He is filled with compassion and he runs to receive him. Now friends, I want you to understand something. And it's simply this. 
God, according to His revealed will, right now, this moment, is ready to receive all who call upon Him. He's ready to receive you. He's ready to receive um, an immoral sinner that lives over there. If a drug addict came to this door, I could tell him, repent, for God is ready to receive you. Is there anything in God that is hindering anyone's repentance? Is it, are we to imagine ourselves for ourselves that um, a sinner wants to repent, but God is holding that back? No, he can't repent because I haven't known him. No. God is good and gracious. He teaches sinners in the way. He is desirous that all men should come to a knowledge of Him. He is ready to receive. And that is actually something that you can put your faith in. That if you turn to God, and if you come to Him through the Gospel door, coming especially to Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, there is a Father who is ready to receive you. Election has essentially no bearing on that question. The secret things belong to the Lord, the revealed things to us and to His children, that we may obey all the words of His law. And the revealed things is, is that God is ready to receive you, and the words of His law is simply this, repent. Come to Him. And you will be received. There is no one who calls upon the name of the Lord in sincerity that isn't heard. There is no one who truly turns from, God, from sin to God with an apprehension of the mercy in Christ who is not received. <coughs> the Father is ready. Verse 22, the Father is reconciled. Now, this is a sweet passage here. So the Father comes and he kisses him, he falls upon his neck, you've seen it in religious artwork, it's beautiful, and he says, I have sinned against heaven. So the son recognizes that his sin was first against God, second against his father. So there's the confession, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son, but the father. And so the son, if you remember what he resolved to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And the father, as it were, interrupts him before he can even utter those words. There will be none of that, my son. The father said to his servants, and what follows is, 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 is great rejoicing, but the point is, is that the enmity that the father should, uh, you know, could have had upon the son is not there. He, he's, he's forgiving. He's turning away his wrath. He's turning away his anger. He's not going to put the son through a rigmarole. He's not going to tell him, all right, son, well, you've come back. It's been a long time. You're going to have to earn your way back in the house. No, it's gone. It's reconciled. Now, when there is enmity between us and God through our sin, who is the offending party? It's us. Who is the offended party? It's God. 
And unless He were to come and He were to remove the enmity that exists between us, we could never attain to a blessing. We could never be reconciled. But here's the glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Here's the message which God sends His people out to proclaim. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God, the Father being thought of there, as God did beseech you by us, we pray in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled unto God. Be reconciled. The message of the cross is one of reconciliation between God and sinners. And the, uh, the repentance and the reception, the Father is reconciled. Enmity is passed away. Sin is removed as far as east is from the west. The guilt is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. The sin which does so easily entangle us is given power through Christ to be mortified. And there will be a time in which that sin is all the way removed. So, think of it this way. From the perspective of the Father, He is ready to receive... When he receives, he is reconciled. He's reconciled. And then third of all, the Father is rejoicing. He says to his servants, Bring the robe, put it on him, and a ring on his hand, and the shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. God is rejoicing over his son. The imagery here, the robes of Christ's righteousness, the signet of the promise of of David, the shoes shod with the preparation of gospel, the fatted calf, an extravagant uh, celebration. Everyone is filled with rejoicing including God, including the Father who's representing God here. He's filled with rejoicing. It is a mysterious thing and we can't fully understand how that God is with, who is without emotions and, and, and can't be moved and, and all of these things that are true and right and yet He communicates things to us to help our understanding and not least of which would be a glorious text in Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, in which we read verse 17, The Lord is thy God, He in the midst of thee is mighty, He will save, He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love, He will joy over thee with singing. God delights in His Son. God delights in in the Son. The, the Father loveth the Son. The Father says, Here is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The Father has given all things into the Son's hands. And friends, when you come to God in the Father, He is receiving you in Him, and He is well pleased with you for Christ's sake. He rejoices over you and your graces. He gives you His fatherly displeasure and His chastisement, but this in itself is far from an evidence of His hatred. It's actually an evidence of His love. Sweet and true as that is. 
It rejoices. You know that God, after speaking after the manner of men, rejoices in your graces. Do you know that God, speaking after the manner of men, rejoices in your prayers? Do you know that God, after the manner of men, rejoices in the crosses that you carry? Do you know that God, speaking after the manner of men, when you arise, when you deny yourself sleep, when you get on your knees and pray and read His Word and meditate upon it, He rejoices. He's received you in His Son. He's reconciled. He rejoices. He, he receives your person in Christ. He rewards you in Christ. He chastens you, yes, in Christ. Oh, but friends, there is something so rewarding about knowing the love of God the Father. Perhaps you've heard this, and it's something that's repeated often. And the reason for that is because it's worth repeating. When John Owen described communion with God, he we have communion with God, and yet we also have communion with the three persons. And, and so when we think of communion with the Spirit, we ought to think of communion, that He's with us. When we have communion with the Son, we think of uh, grace, because He is the one that empowers us. And what do you think when we have communion with the Father that ought to be the first thing upon our lips? And here's what He says. You can go through the New Testament and notice how often love is ascribed to God the Father. In love, God sent the Son. The love of God. Father loves those that are His, and we respond in love to the Father. He rejoices in us. Well, friends, if you take nothing away from this sermon, but that in coming to God, He's eager to receive you. He's reconciled and He rejoices in His own love for His Son, which is bestowed freely upon you. Then I, I will consider it a success this day. Well, as we viewed this grand vista, as it were, maybe with some haste, uh, considering this young man and his repentance, there's two final questions I'll, I'll leave with you. Now, the first question is simply this. Where is your heart? Because if you go back to the case of the younger son, that's where it started. His heart was in the far country before his feet were. He would have been, you know, before that, could have been conceivably sitting in one of these chairs, a son by creation and a son by covenant. And yet all things were not right with him. That's the trouble. That's the problem. That's the straw that stirs the drink. His feet followed his heart. His mouth followed his heart. His spending money followed his heart. And so what your parents ought to be saying is actually what God the Lord says to you. Whoever you are, my son, give me your heart. Take to the Lord this heart which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and plead the promise that he will take a stony heart and make it a heart of flesh. That he will remove the foreskin of it, that He will sprinkle clean water upon it, and that you may rightfully claim by faith, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not the pure through ceremonial
cleansing, not the pure by covenant, but the pure where it matters most. And friends, this, this is only possible in Jesus Christ, but it's freely offered in Him. And not only is it freely offered and freely granted, but this is a way in which the Christian is continually growing. Any man who would say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yep, been there, done that. I'm fine. Oh, what a horrible attitude that would be. The more you grow in grace, the more you see the dark crevices of your heart, the more you need to turn from secret sins, from omitted duties, from poor motivations, and yet the work of God is such that He continually stirs you up and and blesses you in, in such a way Where is your heart? Is it in the far country? Or is it in the Father's house? Second of all, what hinders repentance? This is a sign of repentance. This is all about repentance in a sense, right? And so what hinders it? You may say any number of things. You may say that Sins have so easily entangled you that you can't get out of it. You may say that um, certain pressures that are put upon you in your job or family relations may hinder it. You may say that you're just not ready for this, that, or the other thing. You know, I would say that what so often and so devastatingly hinders repentance is simply this, a low view of God. A low view of God. Of His mercy as it regards our misery. Of His grace as it regards our sin. Of what He has provided in Jesus Christ. You know, when we say to ourselves, the Lord can't forgive me, or He won't receive me now. It sounds pious, but it is an ugly heart of unbelief rearing up in pride and essentially saying, God hasn't told you the truth. He's actually lied to you. Now, we could say this to unbelievers. You may have someone that you're thinking in mind, a friend of the family, or a worker, or someone that you met online, or whatever the case may be, and you may press and strengthen them on this parable, ready to receive, ready to be reconciled, ready to rejoice, come to God in Jesus Christ, turn from your sin, believe upon His name, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. We have an advocate with the Father. If you say you have no sin, you lie and deceive yourself. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all iniquities and plead with Him to come, come, come. Look, behold, see, taste, know God is gracious. And then all the while, when we backslide, I'm talking about a Christian here, when we backslide, We're all too hesitant to get on our knees, aren't we? 
when we tolerate a sin, doesn't it drive us away to the far country? When we come to ourselves and we make these resolutions, don't we make excuses? Don't we think to ourselves, well, not now, this uh, this would be really inconvenient. And what's hindering that? What's hindering it is a low view of God. You need to see a father who is ready to forgive, who is rejoicing in his lost son, and who when he visits you with stripes, rejoices in fresh repentance, rejoices in uh, new obedience, rejoices in new recognition. You know, there was a minister of some eminence, and it was asked how it is that he was doing spiritually. And he said, he was was actually honest, and he said, I find it easier to read my Bible than I find it to pray. He said, I remember when I was somewhere one time, and it was just me, I was in a hotel room all by myself. I didn't have wife or kids to distract me, which sometimes hinders my private time. I didn't have duties pressing upon me. There was nothing left for me to do. It was just a a, a time for me to be alone with the Lord and to pray. And he said, I looked at my bed and I thought to myself, someone has to break my knees to get me on the knees to pray. Have you ever felt that way? I know I need to pray. I don't want to. I'm not talking about an unbeliever. I'm talking about a Christian. What gets you past that? What gets you over the hump? It's a duty to pray. God commanded all men everywhere to pray. If, if, if all that the Lord has you on your knees is a recognition of duty, notice, first of all, that's grace and don't despise it. But notice also that there are higher motivations to pray. Not least of which is God is more ready to receive your prayers than you are to give them. Not least of which is that God is eager for your prayers, as it were. Eager for your fresh repentance. Ready to be reconciled. Whatever sin it is that's broken your felt, just acknowledge it. Come to yourself. See that the reason you are, as a Christian, uh, uh, hungering and and feigning after the, the, the food that the pigs eat is because of your own sin. Acknowledge it. Turn from it. Believe in Jesus Christ. And come. Remember that God is a good and gracious God. He's given us every indication. He's given us every reason to hope in His mercy. And simple faith acknowledges what He said, who we are, and pleads His precious mercies in Jesus Christ. Let us stand for prayer. Lord, this is a glorious text that brings us back to basics. That reminds us of the love of God which so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And reminds us of Your grace to receive sinners. Lord, please work in us that we would not turn aside 
that we would not slide back, but that we would come with freshness and hearts full of faith to believe in your mercy and to receive the forgiveness that is guaranteed in the Lord. Please be merciful to us, bless and pity us. Grant that parents who labor with the cross of prodigal children would continue steadfast, and, O oh God, that you would bring them to the end of themselves and draw them to you. Please grant that our children would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will <clears throat> conclude with the singing of Psalm 46, verses 1 to 5, to the true tune Stroud Water, which is number 137. Notice verse 5. God in the midst of her doth dwell. Nothing shall her remove. The Lord to her and help her will. And that might early prove. of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.